0: A lady at a party come up came up beside him and said he was he was crying about something silly i guess and she said mr churchill you're crying is that a tear i see in your eye he said yes i'm a blubberer." you know he said very proudly and so uh anyway but thank you man <laughs> getting all choked up that got me recomposed okay you can't you can't start this passage crying or maybe you can i don't know uh, it's so good to be back with you guys. We were in New York and, and, and uh, missed last week. And we're in uh, week two of a six-week, I believe, series in Colossians. And like Nathaniel said, this is, if you like, you you, okay, wow, somehow I was still audible, but now I'm really audible. Thank you. Okay. Austin stood up in the back and went, <laughs> it was just so good. I had, to, I had to share it with everybody. It was great. The things I see at production, fantastic. Um, so now you can hear me. Uh, I don't even know what I was saying anymore, but this is such a high passage, such a privilege to preach. Every word of God is a privilege to preach, but sometimes you really, really, really feel it, and you really feel, on the other side of that coin, inadequate. Um, let me jump right in, rather than trying to have a big introduction. Let's let's look at our three points this morning, uh, firstborn over-creation. If we need some structure, we've got it. The firstborn over creation, we're going to look at what that means, what Paul's talking about to this church in Colossae here. Um, the firstborn, number two, over the new creation. You could even say we're looking first at the first Christ as the firstborn over the old creation, and then secondly, as the firstborn over the new creation. And then finally, we get some hope as Paul's sort of wrapping up this little mini section, and then a warning, which we'll finish with. Okay? So, we'll move this over. Let's look first at Christ as the firstborn over the old creation. In this first point, I'm just if you're looking for some trajectory, what I'm going to talk about is how this really speaks to the fact that Christ has rights as God and as man, as the God who has become man and who remains a man in heaven and will come again for us as the God man. He has rights, and he always has over all creation, first rights as the Prince King um, who reigns, and secondly that he's Creator. The language speaks, even though it says firstborn, it seems kind of like he's created, which has helped spawn some heresies, which we'll talk about. It, it very much, Paul is very much saying through this that Christ is the creator God. He's the one creator God. And finally, that he's the sustainer. He doesn't just create. He also sustains uh, with every word of his mouth, uh, everything that's going on. So we'll talk, we'll talk about that Uh, as we talk about the firstborn, first of the old creation. Let me read again verse 15 that says this. It says, He is the image of the invisible God. He is going to be Christ in this passage, okay? He is the image, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So, like I said, this means first that Christ had supremacy or priority of rank over all creation, including over all humanity, which was given the rights. When God made all things, he made humanity last. It's sort of the cherry on top of the creational Sunday, if you will. And he gave the rights to dominion, to rulership and cultivation of creation to us, to humanity. Christ was over us as our captain and our king. That's one of the things this is talking about. It's tapping into the idea, the ancient Near Eastern idea, which was very common and very well known in all the cultures of primogeniture, which really meant that the firstborn didn't have rights because he was a favorite. The firstborn in the family had rights over the family for protection and for sustenance, and to keep the land and the wealth that was passed down from generation to generation together, and to add to it, and to bless the family, and to watch over the family. So this is, this is what this is speaking of. This, this word is used 130 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew. And it, as one scholar says, again, indicates temporal priority and sovereignty of rank. Uh, frequently, the firstborn was employed in the Old Testament to denote one who had a special place in the Father's love. So that's what Christ has here as the firstborn. He has a special place in creation and in the Father's love. This this title echoes verse, uh, and also in verse 18, it's used again in verse 18 of our text. It echoes Psalm 89:27, where God says of the Davidic king, "I also will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth." So it means it means that he has sovereignty of, of place and of rank, and that he has a special place in the Father's heart and a special connection to creation and to us, to humanity. But it also means that Christ is God. It also means that Christ is God. Moving into the sort of second subpoint of this idea that he's the firstborn over the old creation, it means that he's God. Jehovah Jehovah's Witnesses love this verse. They'll use it if you ever talk to them. They'll use it if you get into their, their beliefs. And they'll try to convince you that we believe the same things that an evangelical Christian, a confessional Christian would. And that's not, that's not true. They believe a lot of the same things, but they, they're a heretical sect. And one of the things that, that makes them heretics, and, and, and as we talk to them, we don't want to use that word. We want to try to... We to <laughs> Heretic! Chase them out like Aquinas did with a brand, a burning brand. But no, no, no. We want to invite them in. We want to sit down with them. We want to... Try to lead them to Christ and who the scriptures clearly say he is. And in fact, we could take him here, hopefully after this sermon and say, look, I know we know that this is a proof text of yours. But you say firstborn means born means means created. So not uncreated. He's a semi-divine. He's not equal in rank with God. The father He's not the only God. He's not the only uncreated God. But that's just not true. Uh, It manifestly does not mean this here. So one of the number one rules, maybe the number one rule of text interpretation, the fancy word is hermeneutics in the Bible and in any text is context, right? So what are the words around this mean? And especially the closer they are, the more important, the more import they have for what this verse means. And if we look at uh, verse 16, it's very clear. Paul goes on right after saying this to tell us what he means. By Christ is the firstborn of a creation. And what does he say? He says, for, for is a linking word. What did I just mean here by saying he's the firstborn? I'm going to tell you. For by him, by Christ, all things were created. Guys, in, the, in Paul's worldview, and the Jewish worldview that he's uh, writing out of and to, there's only one who created all things. Genesis 1 and all throughout the Bible. It's the uncreated God. In heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible. He's, he's using these three polarities to say everything. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, just in case I wasn't clear, Paul says, and for him. Okay? So it means that he's God. Verse 16 very clearly shows us this. There's only one creator. There was only one who was, verse 17, who was before all things. There's only one who was before everything the uncreated one, the timeless one, the one who was above space and above time, but who entered time for us. And that is God himself. That's Jesus. Arius, who was an ancient Jehovah's Witness of sorts, a heretic who thought Jesus was not. The one God, but semi-divine and created said there was once when he was not talking about Jesus and using in part this text, talking about Jesus, the Christ. He said there was once when he was not this text, this verse says no to that. No, he was before all things. There's only one who is before all things, and that is God and Jesus is God. That's what Paul is saying. But it's not all he's saying. And we'll get to that. He was before all things. He was uncreated. And he will forever be. Jesus, the Christ, is God. And you can look at verse 19 as well. But you don't even have to leave verse 15 to see this. Um, Jesus is called not just the firstborn of creation, but he's called the image of God. Paul's saying a lot here. But one of the things he's saying is do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. John said the same thing in in his prologue, in the very last verse of his prologue, verse 18, John 18. He said, no one has ever seen God. The only God, he's talking about Jesus now, who is at the Father's side, literally who is in the bosom of the Father, in the Greek. He has made him, Jesus has made God the Father known. And he uses there a literary word, which is, I've said this before when we talked through John, but it means Jesus, literally, John in the Greek says, Jesus has exegeted God the Father for us. He's pu- to exegete is to pull out the meaning that's embedded in a text, to pull it out. Jesus Christ shows us exactly what God the Father is like. He exegetes God for us. For us, when we look at Jesus and his heart of mercy and compassion, at what he's done, at who he is, at the fact that he went down into the grave, onto the cross, into the grave, down into hell for us, we see God exactly. So he's the image of God. He's the icon in the Greek of God. Hebrews 1.3 is similar. He is the radiance of the glory of God, talking about Jesus. And the exact imprint of his nature. Very similar language. He goes on to say this. And he upholds, this is Jesus, the universe, what? By the word of his power. He didn't just create all things. He sustains them by his very word, which is who he is. He is intrinsically, he's not creation. He's separate from creation, but he's committed himself to his creation such that he upholds it. Every second he is upholding your heartbeat, which we'll get back to and I'll press into more. He upholds all the universe by the word of his power. He is not a god who just spoke the worlds into being and pushed back and sat in his divine lazy lazy boy. This is the opposite of that. And after making the author of Hebrews says purification for sins which he did once for all on the cross, he what? Sat down, which is a way of saying he, he's finished. He's finished with that work. It's done. Stop trying to add to your salvation. It's finished. He did it. All look to him. He sat down, finished work at what? The right hand of the majesty on high. There's only one who has the, ple- the ability to sit at the right hand, which, which means in the Bible, the right hand is the hand of power. Most people, I'm a left-hander, but it was you, most people are right-handed. and Your right hand is your hand of power and strength and authority and the, the hand by which you give authority. And it, only one could dare to do that and not be eviscerated. Only one could share the throne with God the Father. This means that God, that Christ, though not the Father, is very God. Of very God. But while it means that Christ is God, it also shows that he's not the Father, like I just said. Look at verse 16 again. Paul says that all was created through him, through Jesus, and for him. So both of these prepositions, through and for, they imply agency of another, don't they? In creation. In creation. So everything was made through Jesus. He, Christ was the conduit, the pipeline through which creation came into being. Um, it, uh, for him, let's look at for him. Again, it implies agency. There was someone that was making all things. Even as Christ was making all things, they were being made through him and they were being made for him. There was someone who was making all things for Jesus as a gift to him. They, all things are a gift to Jesus is what Paul is saying is here, telling us here. By whom? By the Father. The Father made all things and he gave them to the prince, his son, the firstborn who has a regency over all things and who loves his creation and who rules it well and who has committed himself, which we'll get to in a minute, to it in a way that is beyond intimate and beyond almost imagination. If you look at verse 17, this is where I really want to sink into this first point before we move on to point two, that he's, he's not just the firstborn of the old creation, but he's the firstborn of the new creation, which is where we really start cooking. But before we get there, look at verse 17. Uh, look, Sorry, look. Uh, yes, look at verse 17. In him, in Christ, all things hold together. Again, this just speaks of who else holds all things together but God himself. It's it's clearly God. Jesus is clearly God. But he's not just the creator, though. Paul is advancing the idea. Jesus is not just the creator. He what? He upholds all things by the word of his power. He holds all things together. The King James says that in him all things consist. Some translate it exist. There would be no existence. None of us would be here. If not for Christ right now, there's no such thing as just creating and moving back. He he all things hold together in him. He holds all things together by the word of his power. Um, The hold together here is in the perfect tense, which means he's continuously and constantly and right now sustaining everything. Uh, One commentator says this. He says, apart from Christ's continuous sustaining activity, all would disintegrate. Hebrews 1, 3 again, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Again, not only is it because of Jesus that anything exists, it's because of Jesus that anything continues to exist. That's the point Paul's making here. Your existence right now owes to the conscious, I want you to get this, your existence in this seat, listening to me, breathing right now, with a ticking brain and a beating heart and an eternal soul, owes now to the conscious choice of the Son of God that you should go on living at least for now the minute that he decides that's time that's it you're finished it's you will be before him before the judge of all things and you will give account um and then at that point we will know whether we are friend or foe of this living god who came for us theologian cornelius van til Old Reformed theologian, early mid part of the 20th century, taught at Westminster Seminary up in Philly. He says this, he says, atheism stands on the floorboards of theism. In other words, atheism actually assumes, makes a lot of assumptions that it doesn't prove that only uh, an infinite, personal, tripersonal, actually, intelligent, uncreated being can provide for Like meaning, the principle of induction, the fact that uh, what we rely on for science that the next thing that I do is going to be just like this thing, laws, things like that, um, beauty. All these things that, that actually a personal, infinite, intelligent God require, um, the atheist is using to argue against that God. So he's standing on the floorboards of theism to make his arguments against God. We could say something similar here. Christ is sustaining those who argue that he doesn't exist and who are living In every way, flying in his face, um, doing things contrary to his law, to his word, to his love. He holds all things together, including atheists. He was choosing to keep the hearts beating of those who mocked him, who spat on him, who beat him, and and said, who was it that struck you, and who nailed spikes through his wrists and through his ankles. He was willing for them to exist. He was sustaining them. They were holding together in him. And as we sin against him, as I sin against him, as you sin against him, he is sustaining you and he is loving you. And every breath that he is giving you is a conscious choice and a gift. In his classic work, Orthodoxy, in what Indian apologist Robbie Zachariah says may be one of the best chapters in, Western, in the Western canon. Chapter 4, The Ethics of Elfland. If you haven't read it, you just must. Um, Chesterton talks about this aspect of God in Christ's continual upholding of all things. Of the fact that all things hold together in him. He says that God, he talks about just the regularity of the universe of the laws and how the sun rises and sets and trees change colors through the fall, depending on where you are or they stay evergreen. Um, but these laws that we can rely on and rather than talking about a God, rather than indicating to us a being who sort of set the clock and if everything's regular and then moved back and isn't involved uh, and is maybe aged and infirm. And just is okay with monotony. Um, He says, no, he says, children are actually the ones that love the same thing over and over again. And it's we who are jaded and older and growing into infirmity and impatient and not full of life and joy, perhaps as we were, because it's been leaking out through the years, that don't say, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again, like a kid does. He says, they always say, do it again, speaking of kids, and the grown up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. Hmm? And every evening, do it again to the moon. Upholding all things by the word of his power. This is Chesterton exegeting this in a way that only he can. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all, all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old. For what is the mark of sin but death? And our Father is younger than we. Chesterton is suggesting that laws are not laws because God has wound up the proverbial clock of the universe and walked away, as deism would claim, but because he chooses every second for things to be the same or to change. The only reason that tree out there is green and not purple is, because, is not because it is fixed by natural law, but beneath or above that that God has chosen and is choosing for it to be so. If this next second he chose for it to be purple and he spoke that word, it would be purple. So says Chesterton, the sun rises not fundamentally because of a law of gravitation, although it does, it does rise and, and, and set because of laws of gravitation and other laws, not fundamentally though, but because God says every morning to the sun, do it again. He is upholding all things by the word of his power. Again, in the words of the author of Hebrews, like I just said, he upholds all things by the word of his power. I got ahead of myself. It is because he is life itself, ancient but in no way aged or infirm, the very fountain of eternal youth, that he is this way. That as the King James James puts it, all things consist in him. So he's the firstborn of the old creation, but he's also the firstborn over the new creation. Let's look at this. Christ... um, He's not only the firstborn, the God and the king over the old creation, but over the new. What, okay, what does this mean? Let's sink into this. First, we need to discuss a problem that the text indicates. The text indicates a problem. Uh, Paul, uh, Peter O'Brien, a commentator, he points out that Paul has made crystal clear that Christ is the Lord of all creation, of heaven and earth of all things visible and invisible, and then he goes on this litany of principalities, powers. In other words, of everything. It's his way of just highlighting that. Everything, everything, everything. He's the Lord of all. He's the King of all. He's the creator. He's the only God. He's the Lord of everything it is, but listen to this. What is not spelled out, however, O'Brien says, is what has happened to all these things since creation. And in verse 20, Paul uses some language that tip, that tip us, if we, have, if we just entered into this picture and we have no idea what has happened since Christ made all things, and since all things were made by him and for him and through him, he talks about how Jesus came and gave himself up for us, what, to reconcile all things to himself. And then it goes on to talk about making peace through the blood of his cross. The reconciliation implies that creation and he are at odds. That we and Christ, the very God of very God, God himself, are enemies. We need reconciling. We are not friends. Only people who are not friends need reconciled. So that is implying a big problem. And the fact that he's making peace implies that he came into a universe that was at war. It was at war. And... What is this problem? Why are we at war with God? Well, you know, Genesis 3, God made all things good in the beginning. And in Genesis 3, he who was put over all of creation as the vice regent, the co regent with God, um, he rebelled against God and his word. He went his own way. And because he was placed over all things, all things cracked under the rebellion of man and we have inherited that rebellion and we are born into a rebellion against God. I do not have to teach my children to be selfish and to say mine. Somehow they always know that word. You hear it all the time. They know how to grab, they know how to be selfish, they know how to scream and kick. You do not you will never have to teach a child that. That is because we are born into sin. We are born opposed to God. Wanting to sit on the throne of the universe ourselves. All the universe revolves around me. That's how I am born into this world. The problem is this only man was put over creation and rebelled against God. And so only man needs to fix the problem because it's his fault that there's a problem in the first place. But only man can't fix the problem because he's corrupt. He's opposed to God. Okay, and I think, just as a side note, you mentioned the doctor thing. Um, I did some work. My dissertation was on Ecclesiastes. I think that's the point of the book of Ecclesiastes, to show us that our only hope is that man, a king, in the line of David, an Israelite, come and restore all creation, but it's man himself. That's the exact thing that can't happen, because within creation, there's no man that isn't tainted by sin. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity works to prove the existence of an uncreated, eternal, intelligent being. And he goes on to talk about various ways we can learn what this being must be like. Okay? He says we can learn about what this intelligent, uncreated being must be like in a few ways. One of them is nature. We can look at nature and we can see that this being must be very beautiful. He creates beautiful things, so he must be even more beautiful than the things he creates. But he also must be cruel. We can't learn really about God's kindness, although we can in certain ways when we look just at nature. Um, because there's so much death. And there's so much, you know, ostriches stomping on their young and, and others uh, eating their young. And, and it's, it's, it's a wild world out there where ravaging is, is the norm. And death and violence. Not just... With bears and crocodiles and ostriches, but uh, in, uh, with star explosions and all sorts of things. I mean, it's a violent, crazy world. So he's beautiful, but we're not going to learn about his mercy, compassion, and grace. We, we can't go that far yet. Nature just shows us that he's beautiful. But if, if that's all we're going on, that he's got to be cruel, harsh as well. And if you want to dive deeper into that, Annie Dillard wrote a book in 1974 that won the Pulitzer. It's called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. That's just a deep dive into that. It's fantastic. Nobody writes like she does. She's sweet, generous. Okay, so that's nature. Also, he goes, he takes the next step and he goes, you want to learn about God? Just again, thinking about what we've been given, what all cultures have, what we've been our conscience and our um, rationale in the posit that God has put the image of God that he's put in each one of us before we even get to the Bible. okay, the moral law, he said he calls the moral law inside information as opposed to nature to tell us about who God is. Um, It tells us more than nature does about God. It's like, he says, it's like the difference between hearing a man's conversation and then looking at a house that he's built. The house that he's built would be nature. You can learn some things. Some. But hearing his conversation, hearing his words, tells us a lot more. And when we look at the natural law, we learn even more about who God is. And And Lewis says this. He says, the natural law, the thing about it is it's hard as nails. It's not indulgent. It's not soft. There's no flex at all. There's no mercy in the natural law. It might as well ask the multiplication table, he says, for mercy when you make a mistake in math. That's silly. It does, that's not its job. It doesn't do that. It doesn't flex. He says we know from the moral law that God is interested in, quote, fair play, unselfishness, courage, good faith, honesty, and truthfulness. And you know what? Just with that litany alone, none of us could stand. But there is no flex in the moral law. That's right. That's good. It's what God, this uncreated being, requires. We know, so we know God. We know this being must be good. We want him to be. For Lewis says, the trouble is that one part of you is on his side and really agrees with his disapproval of human greed and trickery and exploitation. You may want him to make an exception in your own case so to let you off from, uh, for this one time. But you know at bottom that unless the power behind the world really and unalterably detests this sort of behavior, then he cannot be good. And if God is not good, then there's no hope for any of us, is there? But if he is good, that's bad news for us. Because we know that we can't stand under his rule and under his gaze and under what he requires. We're in trouble. Lewis, in this memorable bit, says, um, we're we're making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day. We cannot do without it, and we cannot do with it. God is the only comfort. He's also the supreme terror, the thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He's our only possible ally, and we have made ourselves his enemies. Lewis says it's only once we're clear on this and face this squarely that Christianity begins to speak to us, that the gospel actually starts to become what the gospel means, which is good news, because that's the bad news and that's a fact. When you know you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. Bless you. And the gospel is our doctor. It is our medicine. It is our only cure. And here is the good news of the gospel. That the demands of the law, Lewis says, which you and I cannot meet. I'm going to read that again. That the demands of the law, which you and I cannot meet have been met on our behalf. And this is where Christ, the reconciler, enters in. Paul affirms this uh, universal reconciliation has been brought about, not in some other worldly drama, but in history, through something done in history, through the death of the Son of God, God himself, on a Roman cross. Jesus lived the life that we ought to live and know we ought to live, but have not lived in our place. And he died the death that we deserve for not living that life on the cross. And he offers himself as our substitute. And he rose from the dead as proof, Romans 4.25, that his payment for you and me, for our offenses, for our rebellion, was accepted by God the Father. So Christ, the firstborn from the dead. Um, I mentioned the phrase earlier, but if you look in verse 20, Paul says he made peace by the blood of his cross. One of our pastors at Sojourn Heights, Dodds Pingra, he said when we were talking about this passage, he said, you know, there's a difference between uh, keeping peace and making peace. And the fact is that this doesn't say that Christ kept the peace. There was no peace to keep. He came into this world, into our space time reality into this mess that we made, and used our rejection to save us, and through the cross made peace between us and God. He made peace. You know, uh, they say that the Colt revolver, Samuel Colt invented the six shooter, the, the revolving pistol, and they say that it changed the face of the West, and it just changed the the, the way of warfare. And it was called the peacemaker. It was called the peacemaker. It was violent. But uh, according to some, anyway, it made a certain sort of peace. The violence that this is pointing to, the violence of Christ being crucified on that cross. And more than that, even the, the things that we can't see were much more violent of God, of Christ enduring the wrath of God being poured out onto him for our sakes. Becoming sin for us. Second Corinthians 521. That. That was so much more violent than anything that we can see happening on that cross. So he endured extreme violence. And to some of us, we, we recoil at that. We think that it's Philistine, it's um, gory, primitive, unnecessary. Why couldn't God just forgive us without this grisly execution of his son? But Croatian author uh, Miroslav Volf, in his book Exclusion and Embrace, He says that this question is a product of a culture that hasn't seen much suffering and that has it fairly easy and that has been pretty isolated, insulated rather. Excuse me. No one, he says, who has truly suffered severe injustice at the hands of another would ask this. They understand that the payment must be made for murder, for instance, rape, genocide. Someone has to pay. Somebody's got to go down. The the balance has to be righted, and it can't be righted through the waving of a hand. Okay, blood has to be spilled. For blood, blood for blood. Uh, Well, friends, the most of the Bible is a a testament to the fact that we have committed severe injustice against the most holy and good and perfect and pure being and loving being, and he can't just let that go. He can't just let that go. So rather than wiping the dish clean with us, he wiped the dish clean with one who represented us, who stood in our place, Jesus the Christ. Lewis, again, mere mere he talks about how, and I mentioned this earlier to the communion crew, but... Um, when you make a mistake in mathematics, when you, I still remember the feeling, I don't remember exactly where I was on the page or what the equation was, but I remember the feeling two pages into this, you know, one of those frightening calculus exams where you have like two questions. It's like, oh dear, that means this is 50%. I'm no mathematician, but, and man, you get, you know, you get to the second one and like you got 10 minutes left and you're checking over your work and you see a mistake. I remember that feeling. It's just like someone just beats you right in the gut. But at that point you can't just you can't just start working where you left off and and work to the conclusion. That's not the way mathematics works. You have to go back, you have to find, don't you? You have to find the mistake and go back and start from where you made that mistake and do it again right. And what Paul is saying here is in saying that Christ was the firstborn from the dead, not just of all creation, but from the dead of a new creation, is that he he is the start over. He is going, he is God's way of going back. God himself through this man, through this uncreated being, through his own son of going back and starting over where we made the mistake, where we rebelled and representing humanity. All of whom will trust any of any person that will trust in him representing them. And in so doing Leading a whole new creation, a renewed creation, not tainted by sin and rebellion against God in his train. So if, you, if we understand this, this do-over, that Christ is God's do-over without destroying us, that's the Gordian knot that he cut. Christ is God's do-over without destroying us because he rose from the dead. dead death could not keep him down. I was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death in Hades, is what Jesus says in Revelation 1. If we get that, then we, we, have to, we also must get that the new creation, it's just a corollary. It's a necessary corollary. It will follow Christ, who is the first fruit of a whole new order. That resurrection meant that a new humanity is coming. Not just that a guy rose from the dead. That a new order is coming. That's not tainted by sin. That's not broken. He is the first fruit who guarantees the rection, resurrection Excuse me, of others. And finally and briefly, a hope and a warning. A hope and a warning. Okay? For the sake of time, guys, I'm going to skip over the fact that he is the head of the body, the church, verse 18. It's a tender verse, and it tells us wonderful things. I think the main thing that it tells us, guys, is that he has so united himself to us that he is truly our head. And we, the church, who trust in him, not in ourselves, but in his work, in his person, what he's done for us, and in who he is, and the fact that he's reigning for us and coming again for us. He is so un- committed himself to us that he is literally our head and we are his body. If you sever the head from the body, the body isn't the only one that dies. The head dies. If you hit the body, the head feels it. He has so committed himself to us that when, when we are touched, he feels it. When he, Paul's writing this, but before Paul was Paul, he was Saul. And he hated the church and he hated God. And Christ c- encountered him on the road to Damascus and he said, Saul... Saul was persecuting the church. He was putting Christians in prison and being an accomplice to murder. And Jesus didn't say, why are you hurting my body? He said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? When we're touched, God is touched because of that vital union that Christ has made with his church. We will never, ever perish because if we did, he would too, and that cannot happen. So we have ultimate and utter confidence. But a hope and a warning in light of that. The hope is that if you look at verse 21, it's so clear. It's worth reading. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind. That was all of us. Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. And then he goes on to talk about and he presents you holy and blameless. Look, we were running from him. We were doing the opposite of going toward him. We weren't even in a stasis, in a neutral place. We were running from him and hating him. And he, through no good of our own, chased us down. In Paul's case, knocked us off our ass, right? Okay? Grabbed us and saved us even though we were opposed to him. He brought us back. He brought us from the dead and made us alive. Salvation is completely his affair. Reconciliation, all him. Making us holy and blameless, all him. If we are in him, it's guaranteed. It's a done deal. But then Paul says, now get to work. Don't you shift. And that's the warning comes in he says don't shift verse 23 that word shift in verse 23 if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard it's a it's a middle voice it's a passive sense it's the sense of one drifting who's not anchored not anchored to the word not anchored in community thinking i can do it alone or just kind of putting my christianity off to the side not feeding on his word not being constant in prayer. Not being held accountable. Not putting myself in places of accountability with others. Knowing that I, I do sin. I've been made righteous. But I'm, I'm in this world. My old man is, is, is in, he's just waiting to be fed. He's just waiting to be fed. And I, sin is crouching at my door. And yet I've been given power over it. If we just sort of sit back in the lazy chair. We're going to shift. We're going to drift away. And Paul says don't you dare do that. <clears throat> Actively pursue Christ, this king, this firstborn who laid his life down for you. Repent, obey, believe, surround yourself with community, find accountability, um, sup in his word, be constant in prayer. How can we know if we and others are saved? If we're bearing fruit? And Paul says in verse 23, if we persist in the faith. It was said in the ancient uh, actually Paul said this, they are not with us because they never were with us. Those who have left us were actually, they seemed like they were. The thing about a wolf in sheep's clothing guys is that he looks like a sheep. The wolf in sheep's clothing doesn't look like a wolf. He looks almost exactly like the sheep and might even have himself or herself fooled. Persist. Don't rest on your laurels, but rest in Christ. And that's the hope that Paul leaves us with in this little mini section before he advances to verse 24 and beyond. He says, don't hang on to the hope of doing better. Hang on to the hope of what? The gospel, which is what Christ has done for you. The fact that he is sustaining all things. The fact that he has gone to the grave for you and is alive forevermore. It, it, the gospel is not the ABCs of our faith, not something that we graduate from to the next phase, and then we start working. The gospel is the A to Z of our faith. It's, we rest in Christ from start to finish. He has done the work necessary for our salvation. We abide in him, and our life comes from him through his Holy Spirit. There's an African proverb, and this is, this is it, and then let's pray. It says this, the best time to plant a tree is 50 years ago. Well, y'all can finish this for me. But the second best time is what? Today. The best time to plant a tree is 50 years ago. Sorry. Hey, if you're reading this going, wait a minute. Wow, this isn't me. I am drifting. I have shifted. The gospel is making sense to me for the first time. Or I thought I was a Christian. I'm actually a wolf in sheep's clothing. I want you to know that the second best time to plant that tree is right now. Today is the day of salvation. Christ is reigning and he will come again. And he is coming with his reward, but he's also coming with a wetted sword to wage war on all who oppose him. And he now is at the cross pointing out, excuse me, he, he's not on the cross anymore. We don't, we don't have crucifixes, right? But <clears throat> he died on the cross in space-time, in history, on a Roman cross, open to all who would come to him, saying to all who would come to him, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter what you look like or talk like, what your past is, what your present is, He like Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. But only me. I'm the only way to the Father. Anyone can come. No, you come. If today is the day of your salvation, you come. Let's pray.